0: The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress.
1: Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Brian Moon from Perigene Technologies.
0: And this is Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science.
1: Today, we welcome our friend, Robert Hoffman. Robert is a luminary in the NDM community, a widely recognized world leader in cognitive systems engineering and human-centered computing. He's a senior member and fellow of numerous international science and engineering societies. Since 1999, he has called the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition his organizational home, and he organized the NDM 6 conference in 2003 in his hometown of Pensacola, Florida. He has co-authored and co-edited 18 scholarly books, including two with your hosts, and is co-author on over 100 publications in peer-reviewed journals. For 20 years, he served as co-editor for the Department of Human-Centered Computing in IEEE Intelligence Systems. He was a co-founder of the Journal of Cognitive Engineering and Decision-Making, a major publication outlet for NDM research. Welcome, Robert, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Our first question gets us focused on uh, or the early part of your career. And we're wondering if you can remember the first paper you published and what it was about.
2: That was when I was in my first days in graduate school. Um, there were two of them, um, 1976-ish. Uh, one was a paper on um, mnemonic imagery and the bizarre, so-called bizarreness effect. Um, I had been working for some while with uh, one of the professors there, Joel, uh, Joel Center, Joe Center, who um, uh, was my mentor in many ways. I took intro psych from him and uh, that's what turned me on to psychology. And he was studying uh, mnemonic memory that is relying on mental imagery as a memory technique. And um, we were all very keen on the bizarreness hypothesis, which was, that if you form associative images that are particularly bizarre, that they are therefore particularly memorable. And we did a number of studies trying various kinds of control conditions to try and find a bizarreness effect, and, and I think we did. Um, although other studies uh, weren't quite as successful as ours, and that was that was um, one of my first publications. Uh, the other one was a, a history piece. I, I became interested at about the same time in um, question of the origins of the so-called psycholinguistic revolution. This was in the 70s, where people were getting uh, excited by uh, a number of things, including um, Chomsky and uh, the, the, the people beating up on Skinner and, and the behaviorists and, and all of that. And this, this was before it became cognitive psychology. This was before it became cognitive science. Uh, mentalism was still taboo. Uh, in many ways, and certainly in many academic psychology departments, and people were riding high on Thomas Kuhn and arguing that there was a psycholinguistic revolution going on, and I thought, I always believed that the work that had been done on mental imagery and mnemonics in particular was part of the mix of of motivating some people uh, to champion what would soon become cognitive psychology. So uh, I got on a bus and I went up to Cornell and I interviewed nicer. Um, I had an opportunity subsequently to interview George Miller, spent some time with both of them and uh, they were clearly influenced by uh, the work that had been done on mnemonic uh, techniques. And so I wrote up a little historical piece on the origins of the psycholinguistic revolution and that was, that may have been my first publication maybe the mnemonics paper was I'd, I'd have to go back and look at my vita but that that goes way back to uh, the the dark ages when uh, psychology was just escaping from behaviorism Unfortunately psychology is still suffering a lingering hangover from behaviorism but relying on voodoo voodoo concepts like the distinction between subjective and objective data and and all kinds of other things that, that still have me concerned to this day so, that historical activity, or uh, that activity way back in my history has its, its lingering impression.
1: That's great. So uh, given your background in experimental psychology, I'm, I'm kind of wondering if you could share with us uh, how you made the turn, if you will, to NDM, or maybe making a turn to NDM isn't the right way to think about uh, sort of where your um, interest and career went after your early work in experimental psychology. Can you kind of help us understand how you you made that turn?
2: Well, it wasn't really uh, a turn directly to NDM. Um, At the time that I was uh, metamorphosing, uh, NDM per se hadn't started to exist yet. Um, There were two uh, key events. One was I started to become dissatisfied with the uh, academic paradigm of psycholinguistics that had been developed on the heels of the study of verbal behavior, including some dissatisfaction with my own research that involved presenting people sentence after sentence after sentence and giving them some sort of judgment task or whatever, and then doing recall or recognition tasks, that sort of thing. after a while, I mean, it, I thought I got some interesting results about psychosemantics, but um, it just didn't seem right that that we'd be reaching conclusions about how people understand and work with language by giving them these kinds of artificial laboratory uh, tasks. And for a long time, I had wanted uh, uh, to work with Jim Jenkins. In fact, um, after I finished my undergraduate work, I wanted to go to Minnesota. But I only got sort of high B-level on my GREs, and I really, at that point, wasn't sure what I was going to do. I almost uh, continued uh, the path of, of becoming a professional musician. Um, but then I got accepted into graduate school at the University of Cincinnati. They had a, they had a and I will answer your question, they had a, they had a, a, a grant that allowed them to um, fund graduate students. And they'd reached a point in that particular year where they had made a bunch of offers to people and had gotten turned down by people who had decided to go elsewhere. So they had these slots and they had to fill them. So they dipped into their own undergraduate pool and asked me if I'd want to go there. And I thought, well, sure. And so I went there specifically with the idea of working with Techonic, which was uh, great fun and eminently rewarding. Um,
1: <clears throat>
2: but then along the way, I encountered the work of Jim Jenkins and thought it was really very, very good. And he had been a colleague with one of my mentors, Bill Denver, and came to, the, uh, came to UC, gave a talk and all of that. And I had coincidentally, uh, and I forget how I learned about it, I had been turned on to a book by a California psychologist named Stephen Pepper. It was called World Hypotheses. Um, probably the most important book I've ever, I've ever read. Um, I think one of the most important books in in philosophy, philosophy, psychology uh, ever. And in that book, Peffer talked about uh, a number of world hypotheses. These are grand metaphorical worldviews. You can see the world as being composed of mechanisms. You can see it uh, composed of of rules and logic. Uh, You can see it from an organic metaphor or you can see it from what Pepper called a contextualist point of view. Uh, And and he provided some very succinct and clear arguments for and against these different uh, worldviews and also showed ways in which they could sometimes resonate together. Uh, So Gibson, for example, is a a formist metaphor, but also resonates with mechanism in some ways. And behavioral views tend to resonate more with with, uh, certain worldviews than others. And all this interesting combinatorics and contextualism the basic ontology is everything is an event everything is an event uh, the table in front of me is an event just on a different scale than ordinary human activity um, and I thought that made great sense and Peppers uh, discourse on contextualism was very very influential <clears throat> because it placed an emphasis on uh, looking out there at the world of events uh, and trying to understand them uh, at, at that level. Coincidentally, uh, I was getting interested in the work of Franz Brentano, uh, who I believe was uh, had an event ontology himself. And um, he talked a lot about um, mental representation and presentations using a theatrical metaphor. This consciousness is sort of uh, in the audience watching the play of events out in the world in front of it, uh, or on stage playing a role. It's a pretty rich metaphor for understanding uh, existence, broadly speaking. And um, at the University of Minnesota was Burnham Terrell, who was one of the world's leading scholars of Brentano, and Jim Jenkins was at the University of Minnesota. So I thought, <clears throat> I'll go to UC and get my master's degree and, and then maybe try and switch over to Minnesota and work with Jenkins. He, too, had been very much influenced by Pepper's book on contextualism. Um, And then uh, Nixon ran into trouble, uh, Kent State, all these things happened. And I figured, well, I better get my Ph.D. and get the hell out, and then I'll try and go to Minnesota on the postdoc. And that's eventually the way it unfolded. So Minnesota had, had, I think, I guess it still has a history of, of applied research, or a practical kind of orientation. Uh, and that, too, uh, was was part of part of Jim's spirit. So these things came together, the influence of, of Pepper, uh, Brentano, Burnham Terrell, uh, also at Minnesota, Paul Meal Had a lot of intercourse and, and, and a couple of seminars with Paul Meal. Um, and that all sort of led me in a, in a more or less applied direction. Uh, coincidentally, <clears throat> the Christmas uh, of, of when I started at, at Minnesota, I went to visit an old physics, physicist friend of mine. He had been part of a, of a group of radicals, well, quote unquote radicals, uh, back in our hippie days at the, at the University of Cincinnati. And was a very dear friend, still is to this day. And I went to visit him at his laboratory in Indiana and walked into his lab and he was hunched over a computer screen looking at this crazy patchwork quilt of colors. I said, what's that? said, so, well, this is an aerial thermogram taken from a plane flying at about, I don't know what it was, 4,000 feet, 5,000 feet, something, uh, looking for buildings that needed better insulation. This was in the days of the first energy crunch. And so with these infrared photographs, they were able to identify buildings that needed better insulation. I looked at it in the crazy colors, <clears throat> and I, I said, well, is this, is this green blob here, is that a tree? He said, no, 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 that's that's a building with good insulation. Uh, and so is this, is this yellow blob a, a, tr- uh, a building with poor insulation? No, that's a tree. Trees are about the warmest thing around in wintertime infrared photography. But so how, how was it decided how to code the different temperatures and the different colors? And he scratched his head. <coughs> Scratch his head for a minute and said, didn't, didn't really know. It turns out it was a color coding scheme developed by NASA. And at that moment, I had this insight that here was this whole new field, then new field, of satellite remote sensing where computer people were generating all these beautiful displays, the Landsat images, which had false color, gorgeous photographs uh, of various spectra uh, of the Earth and very, very beautiful, and I love beautiful things. And this involves satellites and outer space, and I've always been a science fiction fan. So I thought, well, if I could combine what I know in experimental psychology slash human factors and and apply it to this domain, that, that might be an interesting thing to do. So I started to do experiments on how, Uh, experts uh, and novices interpret remote sensing uh, imagery, and uh, did some of that while I was at Minnesota. Uh, And so I started to move more away from the traditional academic laboratory paradigms into something more applied, started to think about uh, the cognition of experts. And uh, it was just about that time, I think, that NDM was about to start, got into a discussion with Gary Klein about the role of analogy in problem solving. This was before the first NDM meeting. Uh, and so I was already moving in that sort of a direction uh, for, for quite some years. Long answer to a good question.
1: <laughs> it was a fascinating answer. Uh, I, I, uh, I want to just quick follow up uh, back to your moments of delusion uh, in, you said uh, the, the paradigms, but also your own, research, I wonder if you could share a story or, or a moment that was uh, particularly troubling uh, where you started to realize this is not what I want to do or this is not the direction I want to go in. Hmm. It's a good question. Um, hmm. I, I didn't have a very good
2: time um, at the uh, at the meeting of the Psychonomic Society that I went to. Hmm. Uh, I presented a study. Um, a, a mental imagery study that I had done with, uh, with Joe Center, And at that, at that particular time, there was a whole bunch of, of stuff getting published about mental representation. Zen and Pilishin and a whole bunch of other philosophically inclined people were, were waxing eloquent about mental representation and is it propositional, is it logical, <clears throat> all that. And I thought it was um, a good example of, of why the best thing philosophy can do for science is leave it alone. Uh, and um, presented um, what was a a, a very, very mentalistic paper uh, about mental imagery and its role in in memory and expressed uh, the hypothesis that uh, it was something that DeConnick called the conceptual base hypothesis. And um, the response to that was was not kind. Uh, And I never went back to psychonomics again. Uh, I, I can't say in hindsight that it was unprofessional. I think it was probably a good question to ask. Uh, why did I you know, believe the things that I believe? Uh, but it was just, uh, just a, kind of an unkind way. And then you know, the traditional paradigm in, in the study of verbal behavior and psycholinguistics, looking at word association frequencies and, and all of that. And nobody was really hammering very hard on the question of, of what's meaning. Um, and I thought that the study of, uh, proverbs comprehension of proverbs and metaphors was a fascinating way of, of thinking about language understanding and meaning understanding generally and, uh, had an opportunity to have a chat with Charles Osgood. And, uh, he recounted a little bit of his background where he said, well, when I was in graduate school, I became interested in the, in the question of meaning. And so I packed up everything I could and, and went on a postdoc and, I was about to do the same thing uh, to, to go to Minnesota. So it was just, a, it was a zeitgeist thing and no one particular um, event stands out. Um, I, I'd have to think about that a little bit more. It was, it was a zeitgeist.
0: Nice, so, so Robert, I wanted to ask you um, kind of fast forward in time to today and I'm wondering what, um, what research directions are you most excited about now?
2: The same one I've been excited about for about the past 10 years, which is to finalize the unified theory of macrocognitive work systems. All of the key components are in place. It's just a matter of sitting down and having the time to write it out. Um, it, it, fundamentally, what it is, is, is putting together uh, a lot of the goo that Dave Woods has thrown at the world and a lot of the goo that Gary Klein has thrown at the world and making sense out of, the, out of them and, and putting them together. Uh, and I think I've, I've achieved that. Um, the, the key insight occurred on one of my trips to Ohio State to, to meet with Dave Woods. We had quite a few long days together discussing all sorts of things. And it occurred to me that Herbert Simon's um, dictum of uh, cognitive limitations was, and I always felt it was misguided, Her, I wasn't particularly thrilled with Herbert Simon. Um, but it dawned on me that that what he was getting at was just one piece of the puzzle. And the other pieces of the puzzle were sort of hidden, uh, or at least not made clear, in what Dave Woods called his Families of Laws, Five Families of Laws, fundamental bounds on cognitive work systems. And it hit me like a lightning bolt. And right away, it started, to, it started to all come together. It all started to make sense. And so it's got uh, a subject matter, all the characteristics of a well-formed scientific theory. It's got a subject matter. It's got uh, me- uh, me- meta-principles about falsification, that sort of thing. It's got a set of laws uh, and, and all of that. And it's just a matter of sitting down and writing it all out. The, the only thing that I've published that comes close to laying it out is uh, a thing I did with Dave Woods an essay called Simon's Slice, making the point that he he had just identified one piece of it, one piece of the pie. Uh, The rest of it I presented in various posters, mostly in posters at at meetings. And then pulling in Gary Klein's data frame model, the flexicution model, and uh, realized that there were uh, other models that were missing that had the same general morphology. Uh, One is a model of teaming, Another is a model of, uh, of uh, uh, developing expertise, and then the fifth is uh, a model of uh, mental projection to the future. That one that was hard. I'm still not entirely satisfied with it, but um, all those models are there. They all look pretty much the same as the data frame model. That is, they're uh, two loop models. One of the loop is an one of the loops is an embedded loop, and it all makes sense. It's uh, it's a way of taking lots of complexity and making it elegant and that to me is a really important criterion for this kind of scientific theory that's dealing essentially with complexity uh, a very complex problem Uh, and that that has always been exciting to me Um, i feel in my heart and in my mind that that the theory is is essentially done Uh, it'd be nice to be able to get it out there and hopefully before too long i'll be doing that good question thank you
0: and, and so um, is your vision that this will be a book, or wh- where, where should we look for this?
2: I'm not sure. I've got a whole filing cabinet of uh, one, two, three, four drawers of stuff that I think is most directly pertinent that could be potentially cited. But I'm also thinking it might be a really short, slim book with just... The really key stuff without a lot of references, I, I'm at this point. I'm just not sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. It does sound like this um, this idea of of big unifying theories has been a theme for you. Even in, earlier in your uh, career, you were interested in these kind of big um, theories of how people think and interact
1: with the world. So, given that, uh, and you sort of mentioned falsifiability in there somewhere, what what ideas, past or current, um, do, do you think sort of present the strongest challenge to NDM or, um, you know, sort of the, the, the macrocognitive approach? What, what do you see as sort of the strongest challenges?
2: Graduate education.
1: Right, that was not the kind of challenge I was looking for, but I completely appreciate why you said yeah. that. I mean, if 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 you're if you're putting together sort of a, a an overarching theory then um presumably as you said that theory's got to predict things, it's got to uh you know, follow certain approaches. But but I'm sort of wondering um are there findings that people could come up with say in the lab or elsewhere uh that might make the NDM community um uh, think again, about the way that it looks at the world or the way that we think about the way that people make decisions or experts behave. are there are there sort of uh, what are the falsifiable pieces of, of the Indian perspective?
2: That's a good question. Um, it's actually a whole bunch of questions, of course, very much. Um, in, in the theory as it exists right now, um, the primary um, uh, metatheoretical postulate about falsifiability is a sort of a twist on uh, Gödel's theorem. Uh, and what I assert is that the uh, postulates in the theory are consistent, but that the theory is necessarily incomplete. So the path to falsification is to show some sort of inconsistency. So you've got each of the each of the families of laws involves one, in some cases, two or three, basic trade-offs. Uh, and we're witnessing one right now, dare I say it. I don't want to be an ambulance chaser, but we're witnessing one right now with the coronavirus. Where the fundamental bound is on uh, resource limitations, and people are dealing with uh, what is uh, what might be called an acute problem—that is, this immediate urgency—and yet we see everybody asking questions about, well, why didn't you prepare for this years ago, and, and how could you have, you know, done a better job of, of positioning uh, society to to cope with all of this, and why didn't we have more? Respirators stockpiled and all of that, and that would have been treating it as a, a chronic problem, a long-term chronic problem. And it's since your resources are limited, you've got to you've got to balance that trade-off at any one point in time with all the factors that enter into it. So if 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 a politician had said twenty years ago, "Well, we need to build a stockpile of of five hundred thousand respirators," uh, people would have said, "Are you kidding? You don't have the money to do that. We've got all these other important things to do." So there, there, are these, there are these trade-offs. So that's just one family of laws. There are other families of laws that involve other trade-offs. So an inconsistency would be if I figured out a sweet spot for this particular trade-off. It shouldn't necessarily uh, negate or mitigate uh, any effort to balance one of the other trade-offs. So that's a path to falsification. Uh, and, as I say, the, the, the premise is that the theory is necessarily incomplete, I think that comes as part of what it means to be a theory of complex systems. I think that's kind of an answer to your question.
1: It is an answer that we will be thinking about for quite some time until your book comes out. But,
2: um... I, I want to get back to my first answer to your question, which is about graduate school. Uh, time and time again, I see young people coming out With degrees in psychology and degrees in computer science who are woefully undereducated, just mind-bogglingly undereducated. Computer scientists who don't know much about the history of the field of AI and work that was done in the 70s and 80s, and so they end up reinventing wheels, uh, coming up with their own new ideas, which are bright and brilliant and insightful, but they've been around for a long time. They give it a new name because they have to seem special, uh, and all of that. And they just they're just not adequately trained in history uh, of, of their own field. And I think the same for uh, for a lot of people uh, that I see, at least the ones I see, there's a bias there because there are lots I don't see uh, of people in, in psychology who are who are undertrained. And and they're taught there's rampant voodoo thinking, there's rampant voodoo thinking about statistics, especially with regard to null hypothesis significance testing. Uh, people don't understand statistics as an exploratory tool suite. They take it as a way of abrogating the responsibility to make sound scientific judgments. Oh, I got an effect size of 1.5, and that's the holy grail, and, and lots, of, lots of voodoo thinking. So I advise people to read papers like Gigerenzer's paper on mindless statistics. I invite people to take courses in the history of psychology, the history of science, and God, it's amazing how many... Programs in undergraduate and graduate psychology don't require students to take good courses in the history of the field or courses in philosophy of science. It's just I think that's a major obstacle to the progress of the field of psychology and the field of computer science, and not just the particular paradigm of naturalistic decision making.
1: You, you didn't mention you didn't mention methodology in terms of how to do this kind of research, and that seems to me to be another area that's missing. Do, do you find that? Um, How how do you help people who express an interest in this field?
2: NDM NDM research, of course, involves going out into the world. uh, And maybe you can bring some of the world back into the laboratory. Good research does a little bit of both. You take aspects of the laboratory out into the world and bring the world back into the laboratory. And I've been saying for years that, of course, in field research, it's possible to control and manipulate variables and do all those other grand things. I've done that myself many times. So seeing a sharp bifurcation between those is is not the right way to go. But it's the legacy of academic psychology. You have to run experiments <clears throat> that can be conducted with college freshmen and then end up end up making conclusions about people. Uh, and the experiments have to last about the duration of a college class. Uh, and they have to have toy problems. It has to be a toy problem because it's a reductive research context. And so when you say to people, well, hey, you know, why don't you, why don't you go look out there in the real world and say, oh, well, it's difficult. Oh, grumble, grumble, grumble. Uh, we see a similar version of that in computer science. We so say, well, well uh, research is hard and we're trained in computer science. We don't get brownie points. for doing experiments. We're not empiricists. So we'll just throw a bunch of stuff at a web page and collect a ton of data on mechanical Turk and get Pete less than 0.01. Um, so I think, I think it's a, a paradigm limitation, uh, a, a traditional paradigm that, that has a serious limitation. And people have been calling in, into question uh, in recent years. I'm not the only one. Paul Meal. Uh, called the whole paradigm into question uh, many decades ago, and others Gigerenzer uh, have been belly aching about it. Um, so I guess I guess I guess that's what I have to say about that. Did I answer your question?
1: You did. Um, <laughs> yeah. So so one more uh, for me. You you mentioned sort of getting out in the real world, and I know you've had the opportunity to get out to lots of interesting real world places. I wonder if. Um, if over the years any particular stories or insights that you've learned from uh, the experts that you've interviewed uh, or watched um, kind of stick out to you as particularly insightful or uh, they, they think are illustrative of of what this whole field's about?
2: Uh, well,
1: yeah, uh, two things come to mind.
2: One, very simple, uh, although very powerful. Um, one of the experiments... Um, I have done, which I'm still working on writing up right now, in fact, involved um, getting um, expert weather forecasters to interpret some uh, satellite images for me. And I wanted to have a control group, but this was a a non-trivial task. And so I decided to run uh, a group of people who were experts on expertise uh, and run them through the same experiment, knowing that they would probably be able to generate um, hypotheses about what I was researching and why I was researching it and what my hypotheses might be. And that's okay. And so one of the people I ran in this task was Paul Feltovich. And we got into a discussion about, um, I, I don't know back then if we called it cognitive task analysis or not. Um, and he said something to me that that ended up, I think, being very, very profound, which is in this, in this kind of context, the cognitive field research or cognitive task analysis context, never ask questions that can be answered yes or no, because you won't find out anything. Always ask questions of the form, what are some ways in which blah, blah, blah. Uh, and that that's a very important um, weapon to keep in one's hip pocket when, when, when interviewing experts. The other, um, the other experience that comes to mind is I spent a couple of summers Down at the Corps of engineers, a place that back then was called the Engineering Topographic Laboratory. And I was learning about aerial photo interpretation from uh, a couple of the the best aerial photo interpreters on the planet. Uh, And one of them uh, became a dear friend and mentor, a gentleman named Olin Mincer. um, Helped me considerably, and and I learned a lot from him. And so I set about, and one one of the projects I did, I set about trying to build what computer science would come to call an ontology. This was an ontology of landforms. Of course, there were lots of, lots of dictionaries about geomorphology and, and landform analysis, but nobody had created something like uh, a, a semi-formal uh, ontology that's based on uh, propositional representation. <clears throat> and so I was interviewing him uh, and running through various experiments, trying to get at the question of how to most effectively elicit the knowledge of, of experts. Uh, this eventually became a publication in AI Magazine, which had a big impact that pleased me very much. It was one of my best pieces of work. And um, along the way, <clears throat> I was asking him various questions about different uh, rock types and landform types and and how one could uh, analyze them and interpret them from aerial photographs. Uh, now, the, the backstory on this is I had spent quite a few summers when I was a kid studying geology and uh, minerals and fossils and so on at the Cincinnati Museum of Natural History. Cincinnati um, and the surrounding region uh, sits on an ancient formation that's called the Cincinnati Formation, where you dig down beneath the topsoil and you're just going to come up with handfuls of fossils. I mean, fossils everywhere. So summer after summer after summer, I would be down at the the park and the creek digging through the clay and the mud Pulling up all kinds of fossils, brachiopods and crinoids and trilobites and just all kinds of all kinds of stuff, and so I'd studied um, mineralogy and fossils and I knew a little bit about that kind of stuff. So when I got to the Corps of Engineers, you know, we're talking about you know sandstone and you know, other kinds of rock types and so on. I kind of had some idea of what what was going on, but then we were getting Olin and I were getting into some details about about particular landforms. And the way that you, if you're driving along an expressway and you look off to the side and you see the hills from the angle and the contour of the hills, you can make some inferences about the nature of the, of the bedrock. Uh, and I just happened to ask him, you know, what, what is limestone? And at the time I thought, what a stupid damn question to ask, you know, this world-class civil engineer, what is limestone? But, But I just asked him and he paused and he, and he scratched his head and and he said to me, you know, that's a really interesting question. <laughs> uh, this other fellow over there, I won't mention his name, other, other civil engineer, he, he and I have been having a long debate about what we mean by limestone. Well, it turns out limestone is a conceptual category. And there are lots of variations on it and its composition and its uh, metamorphology and, and all of that sort of stuff. And so we got into a long discussion about that, and that was very, very illuminating. So what I took away from that is, and it's the old adage, but when you when you actually experience it when you're doing cognitive task analysis with an expert, it really gets driven home. And that is never, ever be afraid to ask what you think might be a stupid question. Never. And it's not just that you'll get an interesting answer, which I did in the case of Limestone, but it also helps establish rapport with the expert. It shows them that you're not afraid to ask stupid questions, which is a good thing. Uh, and maybe you'll get a chuckle out of it, and that'll help establish rapport. So it serves a, it serves a number of purposes. So those two things: never answer, never ask questions that can be answered yes or no, and never be afraid to ask stupid questions.
0: That is great advice. Um, so, so Robert, um, I know lots of people know you as a, a, a scientist, but as we're talking, you're giving us these little insights into your life, your hippie days, and your interest in music, and and I'm wondering if there's something about you that our audience probably doesn't know that you'd, you'd like you could share with oh, us. Oh, boy.
2: How personal do you want to get? Um, there are lots of things <laughs> about me that lots of people don't know. Uh, I'd like to think that most people know that I have an unbridled sense of humor. Uh, I'd like to think that people understand that I am at least sometimes capable of pulling my punches even though I'm told I can be intimidating. That is, that is never my intent, unless somebody says something that's incredibly stupid, in which case my hair will catch on fire or I'll leave the room. Um, what do they not know? Oh, I don't know. I like to, I like to refinish and restore damaged Art Deco furniture. Um, I like to read comic books for my extensive comic book collection. I like to read mystery novels. I binge watch Perry Mason and Jeremy Brett's Sherlock Holmes, and David Suchet's Hercule Poirot. Um, I still play the drums. Just got a beautiful new drum set a couple of years ago, uh, which I've wanted for a long, long time.
0: What kind of music?
2: Or what kind of music do I play or do I like? I like? I like I like many kinds of music. I don't care that much for opera. It's usually, Opera is usually in a language I don't understand, and it usually ends up with somebody killing somebody else and uh, i can only take so much of that uh, but other than that i like all kinds of music uh there's some great world music going on like um the celt sound system uh king sunny a day um i love well my my professional inclination was blues uh, blues music uh, rock and roll played a lot of rock and roll. worked my way through college playing rock and roll and blues um I like to listen to uh, some newer stuff on Up Prime, a huge Primus fan. Um, what else? Oh, I don't know. Jazz, of course, Weather Report. Um, I guess that covers a gamut.
0: Yeah, thanks. Thank you for sharing that. Sure.
1: I think people might be surprised to learn what a big football fan you are.
2: I like professional football. Um I, I'm, I'm a hypocrite about it but i like it um, it's an interesting combination of of like chess and nuclear war <laughs> and um, I, I respect the people who are basically willing to sacrifice their lives and their health in order to entertain us but when 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 football and not just professional also college level although i i, I i'm less inclined to like college football i appreciate the fact that it feeds professional football but I think it could be a little bit distracting from from academics. Uh, But when when a professional football game is well played, by that I mean it's the players show consummate skill. Nobody gets hurt. Um, It's really quite beautiful. And the the best way to to appreciate that, that, that I recommend to people, is try and go to a professional football game where you can get a seat as close to the playing field as possible, down at the level of the players, and you realize how what they do is so incredibly difficult. The patterns they can perceive in an instant, uh, perceiving dynamic patterns, very complex dynamic patterns in an instant, and act with incredible uh, physical endurance and skill is uh, it's it's a lot of fun. And I've I've become especially um, what? Uh, endeared of the sport uh, as a result of the devastation of the hurricanes in, in New Orleans. And um, both my wife and I will always be lifelong fans of, of the Saints and will always uh, root for them, especially in the last two seasons where they got screwed out of a Super Bowl game by bad refereeing in the last play of the game. Absolutely incredible. Um, but yeah, I like professional football. It's, it's, it's fun to watch. We also go to University of West Florida games. Last year, University of West Florida won the national championship. Uh, this year, unfortunately, they're probably not even going to have a season. There's not going to be anything for a year uh, if people are smart, which is a big assumption. Um, but
1: uh, we root for the local teams. Uh, to a follow-up on the dynamic patterns idea. Do you think methods of cognitive task analysis can be fruitfully applied to Athletes in those kinds of situations,
2: oh sure, people like Paul Ward has done that Paul Ward has done that in soccer David Eccles did that for uh, orienteering um, who else um, uh, the the work that's been done by uh, uh, some uh, u- some of our u k friends and um, and others in uh, policing um, active shooter kinds of incidents yeah sure. Sure. And they've, excuse me, to some extent had success in bringing the world into the lab with uh, using their uh, high fidelity simulation. So it's a good, good example of, of applied NDM, or, well, I think all NDM is applied, but, uh, uh, but a, a good example of NDM research in, in, in that general arena.
1: So athletes, you believe, have, have the kind of recall necessary to discuss at the level of detail those kinds of patterns that they see and oh,
2: yeah that's part of their job. That's part of their job you can see them in the sidelines looking at looking at snapshots and they, they analyze it in group discussions in great 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 detail I mean very fun grain of detail sure they can talk about what they perceive and and, and 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 how they respond to it
1: yeah sure excellent so I'd like to switch gears a bit uh, and ask you a few questions Terms and do a bit of an associative thinking exercise which I'm sure you'll be thrilled about uh, we're gonna we're gonna hold you to uh, three words or less on the response and if you want to elaborate you may elaborate on just one of these so I'm not going to tell you what they are ahead of time you have to you're gonna have to pick one uh, uh, to elaborate on Are you ready Yeah. Three words or less. Expertise.
2: Interesting, important, rephrase. Interesting, necessary, and challenging. Rocks. Uh, beautiful, hard, and expensive. Experiment. Interesting, challenging, and necessary.
1: Philosophy. Oh,
2: boy. Philosophy is like a cat herd.
1: Intelligence.
2: Uh, A nebulous uh, psychological concept. Jazz. Uh, Fun, difficult, and uh, rewarding. Weather. Um, Fun, dangerous, and fascinating.
1: This is your last one. Did you want to elaborate on any of those?
2: Um, Well, um, I guess rocks. I I wanted to throw in more words there. Some people may not know that um, I am uh, an avid collector of fluorescent minerals. Um, I've got fluorescent minerals from all over the world, very large collection, and they are all very heavy, uh, absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. But I also like to take... um, various semi-precious stones, and create bolo ties, custom bolo ties. I've made a great many of them, and I really enjoy doing that.
1: Last word, food.
2: Food. (laughs) Uh, Three words, Uh, important, important, and important.
1: Well, thank you, Robert, for speaking with us today. Uh, It's been an absolute joy to put you on the spot and have you respond in your usual. (laughs) (laughs) usual (laughs) Um, But on that note, we want to thank you again for joining us. Thank you very much. Uh, For the NDM podcast, I'm Brian Moon.
0: And I'm Laura Militello. If you'd like to learn more about naturalistic decision making, you can follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org.